morning, everyone. One more time. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Anybody else here? Am I by myself? <laughs> Trust you had a great week. What a wonderful time. Thank you, Jason and the praise team for that very masculine leading worship. <laughs> very uh, manly wor- leading us this morning. It's a joy and a thrill. Thank you for your service. Or well, continuing our study in the book of Galatians. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read together verses 1 through 10, but because we studied verses 1 through 5 last week, we're going to um, study just verses 6 through 10. We're going to read that whole passage. Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Let's please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the word of God. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who, had, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom, that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you and from those who seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary... When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Please be seated. Well, I read somewhere a few years ago how a, a business person, how he described heaven, his view of heaven. For him, heaven was a place where there were no more meetings. Right. So I don't know about you, but... A part of my heart agrees with him. Uh, being in the ministry, for many of you guys, endless meetings. And after hours upon hours, what was that all for? Right? It was all for, for very little or for nothing at all. Uh, so if I can you know, swing it, I try to avoid meetings as much as possible. I try to cut short meetings as much as possible. I have a limited capacity for sitting in an office uh, discussing issues. There is one meeting, though, I would love to have been in, and I would love to have been there early and stayed late, and that's the meeting described here in Galatians 2. This is a, a power meeting. This is an incredible meeting. And a few years ago, I was able to go to the Independence Hall in Philadelphia, and the Second Continental Congress met there, and, and my wife and I were actually in the room where they signed the Declaration of Independence, and in that room, 200-plus uh, years ago, you know, stood, sat there, John Adams, Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, they were in that room. Well, that's a powerhouse meeting, but what's happening here is much more monumental. In this meeting, there are four men who are responsible for all the books of the New Testament, except for Hebrews and the Gospel of Matthew. These four men are responsible for the New Testament Bible, right? So Luke Acts, Luke was a companion to Paul, so he got the gospel and, and uh, from the uh, book of Acts through Paul. Mark was a companion to Peter. James wrote James, half-brother of Jesus. And John wrote uh, the three epistles, Revelation, the gospel of John. And Paul wrote all the epistles. So these four men are responsible for a bulk, 90% of the New Testament. And I wonder what they were talking about. I would love to have been a fly on the wall, maybe ask a few questions as well. Right? It's concerning you know, what Jesus looked like. I mean, would you have liked Korean food, Korean barbecue? Those important matters. I would love to have known these, 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 these questions. 
well, so Peter described this meeting, and then he went on a, a tangent point as he was describing this meeting about Titus, the test case. Uh, Titus was a godly man, an overseer of the island of Crete. He was an elder, a pastor, and he was a Gentile believer. He was not circumcised. And in that private meeting around the Jerusalem meters, they did not force Titus to be circumcised as proof that the gospel is salvation by grace through faith alone, that we are not to add any requirement to the gospel, uh, any works to the gospel to be justified before the sight of a holy God. He went on that digression, and in verse 6, he comes back to this meeting, and then he describes these leaders, and he, he uh, identifies them in verse 9. They're somewhat anonymous until verse 9. He identifies them as Peter, John, and James. And he uses this verb four times in this brief passage. The Greek word is dokin, and it means uh, to seem, right? Ideas to appear. Look at verse, uh, starting with verse 2, before those who seem to be influential. Verse 6, those who seem to be influential. Latter part of verse 6, I say who seem to be. Verse 9, those who seem to be pillars. Now, if, you know, in a, a cursory reading, you, know, you, you would get the sense that Paul was uh, disparaging these leaders, right? These guys seem to be, you know, great athletes. And then we played them in ball and we, you know, skunked them, right? These guys seem to be smart, but I saw their GPA, right? These guys seem to be leaders, pillars of the church, but in reality, they were nothing. And Paul was like dogging on them, right? Paul was depreciating them. Well, that's not what Paul is doing. Paul would not ask for a private meeting with these men if he didn't respect these men, revere them. Trust them as, as godly men who are leading Christ's church. Uh, he would not make that journey all the way to Jerusalem if he had a low view of them. What he was doing was he was depreciating the Judaizers' perspective of these men. And um, we'll study this more in detail next week. But there is a, a symbiotic relationship between legalism and the fear of man. Right? There is a direct correlation. This is how legalists influence people, and lead them away from the gospel of grace, back to the law, to Egypt, to slavery, to adding requirements to the law. And one of their key weapons that they use is fear of man. And that's one of the key weapons that our heart uses to ensnare us back to the law. And so these Judaizers were using, they were name dropping. They were making much of these Jerusalem leaders. They were speaking in hyperbolic statements about these great, godly, awesome men, and they were misrepresenting them, how they believed you need to be circumcised to be full Christians, therefore you must be circumcised as Gentile Christians. And they were making much of these men, and Paul is not depreciating them, but he is disparaging these Judaizers, who's making much about people. After all, they're just flesh and blood. After all, they're sinners saved by grace. After all, they're just like us. And so he says again and again, Dokin, 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 to remind the readers, the Galatian readers, that the gospel stands above all, all people. And then he adds in verse 6 why he believed this. Uh, the mindset behind it, um, because God shows no partiality. It's, in parent, it's a parenthetical statement. It's in parentheses. So Paul's making a comment about his own statements here. He says, um, I, I wasn't impressed. I wasn't unduly influenced by, by these men because these the, this theological truth, the teaching from the Old Testament that God shows no partiality. And in the Greek, the literal translation is, God does not accept the face of man. So God doesn't care what you look like. And for most of us, that is good news. Right? Some of us, is bad news. Most of us, praise God, right? God doesn't look at us, look at our faces, and show partiality. And this is replete throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Key verse is 1 Samuel 6, 6 and 7, 
when uh, uh, Samuel saw um, Jesse's son Eliab, he thought, surely this is the future king of Israel because he is handsome, right? He is, he is, his body's built like Brock Lesnar who, got, who lost yesterday, right? He's got the face of Tom Cruise. He's got the height of, I don't know, some tall guy, Brian Kang, right? This guy, <laughs> this guy's the man because look at him. And God said to him, do not consider his outer appearance. For the Lord does not look at a man's exterior appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. God looks at the inner person, the, the, the invisible man, the true person that only you know, really God knows and, and we know in a, in a, in a fleeting way, in a, in a cursory way. Uh, that's why uh, when, when, when Paul described his calling in chapter 1 of Galatians, he said, God called me right, before I was even born. And that's what uh, alluded to Jeremiah's calling. And uh, God told Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 8, do not be afraid of their faces. Right? So do not be afraid of, of people in um, you know, big hats and flowing robes and a lot of letters behind their names and you know, their resume and their achievements and their looks and their impressions. Do not take into account these exterior things. You need to preach the truth. And God said the same thing to Ezekiel when God called Ezekiel in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. In fact, he said, I will make your face as hard as their faces. I will make your forehead as hard as their foreheads, right? So you'll be as impressive as them. Do not be moved by their outward appearance. So that's what Paul is doing. He's not disrespecting them. He is disrespecting these false teachers who are trying to use they're manipulating people by making much of other people to, 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 to sow in their hearts fear of man to add to the, to the gospel, works of the law. That's what he's doing. Right. So with, with that said, Paul describes this meeting and he says there were two results to this meeting. Very simple sermon this morning. Right? Very simple sermon. I think even the children here will know what the sermon was about because there are only two points. Right? They had a meeting there were two results. The first result was very positive for Paul. Verse 6 at the end, they added nothing to me. In the Greek, uh, to me starts at the beginning of the sentence. And so in the Greek, emphasis, emphasis was given not by exclamation point, but how the sentence was structured. structured. And so they would put in the front of the sentence, Anything they want to emphasize. And so he was doing a little bit of, little bit of a Yodoism here, where he said, to me, they added nothing. Uh, to, to, to highlight the point that when, when I presented to them the gospel, present tense, the gospel I was preaching, right now, this is my message to the Gentile people. And I, I said it before them, and they heard the gospel, and then they didn't add anything. They didn't say, Paul, man, you left out the key feature of the gospel, which is the laws of the Old Testament, right? Circumcision, observing the Sabbath, all these rituals, ceremonial laws that are binding for all believers to be Christians. You must adopt all these rules and regulations. Paul, you left it out and they corrected me. They censored me. They rebuked me. And now I stand corrected. That's not what happened. They heard the gospel that Paul was present tense preaching. And they said, hey, that's our gospel as well. Right? You received independently from us. You know, Peter was saying, hey, he wasn't with us for three and a half years. John, you are with me. James, you're the half-brother of Jesus. We received the gospel from Christ, but independent from us. None of us witnessed to Paul. He met the risen Lord on the road of Damascus, Acts 9, and he was given this supernatural, divine gospel message, and we come together, we compare notes, and it's the same truth. And Paul says that was the result. They added nothing. They added nothing to my gospel. They didn't subtract anything. They didn't change anything. It remained the same. What good news. Now, before we get to the next result, we need to jump to verse 10 because 
Some people say, well, Paul, Paul got tricked. He got bamboozled, right? You know, he didn't read the fine print. You know, like uh, the brother in our church trying to buy his first car, and he, he asked me for help. And I love people. I love helping people buy their cars, right? Because I have made so many mistakes buying cars in my life, right? I, this is my way of getting back to the dealerships. <laughs> right? I can't go back and sue them for, uh, you know, raise, lowering my trading value, raising my interest rate, putting in the hidden fees. I bought a Nissan Altima. Man, 1992 or 93, man, I got, I got ripped off, right? Because I didn't read the fine print. So any of you guys are buying a car, like Kelly helped to buy a car, I, I'll be there for you. I want to help you out. It's my way of like winning, right? Um, and so we know when you buy anything, you got to read the fine print, right? And so Paul, he said, he's all, you know, proud. They didn't add anything. And then verse 10 they added a stipulation. Remember the poor. We ask you just one request. Remember the poor. Right? They, under the radar, right, snuck in a command and they added to the gospel. And uh, this is, again, Acts 11 meeting, right? Acts 11 meeting. So you fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on you. Is that right? <laughs> shame on you, right? So for Paul, he this happened to him twice. He got bamboozled twice. In Acts 11, private meeting. In Acts 15, in the public meeting, he got scammed again because in Acts 15, well, you know, we, we tricked Paul last time with one requirement. Now let's add to it. Let's add four requirements and see if he notices. And again, Paul didn't notice. And so shame on Paul. He got tricked twice. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. And then we'll come back and look at the fine print. Is Paul mistaken here? Did he make a deadly error? Did he compromise unknowingly by having a command of the Old Testament and having it added to the gospel to be a full Christian? Many have said, and I agree, that the Jerusalem Council described in Acts 15 as the most important event in the history of the early church. Most important event. Its placement at the center of Luke's narrative in Acts, and from its influence on subsequent developments in the apostolic age, tells us this is not exaggerated. From Acts 15 on, the scene shifts from um, evangelism to the Jewish people to Gentiles, and focuses on Apostle Paul and his ministry to the Gentile world. So this, this is a turning point in the book of Acts. And this is the first council, and they are dealing with uh, gospel heresy, a false teaching uh, that determines the nature of the gospel and the destiny of all Christians. The, the issue again, and we've talked about it cursorily many times in our previous studies, um, but our, the, the issue again is ch- chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers this, quote, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The issue was they're trying to add to the gospel. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Right? They had strong debate. Paul was not into controversies. He was not into quarreling about words. He was not into getting into uh, conflict with fellow believers, except when it dealt with the gospel. And here, Paul said, here where I stand, I can do no other. And they had such a strong debate, they had to bump it up, right, to a higher level and went all the way to the Jerusalem apostles and elders. They went to the elders, verse 2. Verses 6 and 7, the apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. And then even among them, verse 7, there was much debate. And then, verse 7, Peter stood up. Apostle Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And so speaking of tongues in the the book of Acts, it's not about spiritual gifts. It was about validating that the Holy Spirit 
entered them, they were genuine Christians. Right? It's not something to imitate. It's not something that we should pray for. It's not something that happens in, 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 in our age after the closing of the canon. It happened in the book of Acts to show the Jerusalem church that God accepts Gen- Samaritans, God accepts Gentiles, and God also, also accepts the disciples of John, Acts 19. So here is this transition of the New Testament church where the whole world is being included. In Acts 2, the Jews receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues. In Acts 8, a Samaritan, a half-breed, receives the, hears the gospel, receives the Spirit, speaks in tongues. In Acts 10, Gentiles receive the gospel, receive the Spirit, speak in tongues. In Acts 19, apostles of John, disciples of John the Baptist, receives the gospel, Holy Spirit, and tongues. And it was to show the international makeup of the church. So Peter is saying, God accepts Gentiles. And it's evident because they're speaking in tongues and evidence of the Holy Spirit. Who are we to reject them? He made no distinction, verse 9, between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that we will be saved to the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Man, amen, Peter. I praise God. And then Barnabas and Paul gave their report of what God was doing among Gentiles. The assembly fell silent. They related to the signs and wonders that God had done through the Gentiles where they were receiving the Holy Spirit and they were speaking in tongues, foreign languages for evangelism. And they're abounding in the gifts and they're abounding in ministry and fruits of the Spirit. And then James, Jesus' half-brother, verse 13, rose up and spoke. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. Then the remnant of mankind will seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment, verse 19, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That's the decree. That's the, the, the decision of the Jerusalem council that the apostles and elders made together. And they declared it to all the churches and made it binding for all Christians. But verse 21, verse 20 and 21, the fine print. But we should write to them to abstain from these things, abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. Verse 21, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now what is going on here? These are all laws laws from the Old Testament, specifically laws in Leviticus 17 and 18. So they just said you're saved by grace alone, and yet they add these four requirements to the gospel additional to the requirement in Galatians 2, verse 10, remember the poor. And so it's either double speak. Some, some contend that Acts is not a reliable document, therefore, because of this inconsistency. Harmonization is impossible, or Paul was led astray. All right, so for us, no more, right? No, no more eating, I don't know, food with blood. I mean, only Koreans do that, right? And that's first generation Korean. I mean, I don't do that, but... <laughs> we're, we're bound to the Old Testament. What is happening here? Um, I, I, I really hope I'll, I'll convince you this morning. I really do. And I, I, I believe a closer examination will show that nothing of the sort was happening, of adding to the gospel was happening here. The gospel remained pure. Um, if you look at the four, they all belong to the ritual sphere. Right? Meat offered to idols was an abomination to Jews. For them, idolatry from their youth was taught as an abomination, and they 
abhorred it. They distanced themselves in every way possible. Strangled meat that was one way to have blood remain in the animal. So Jews avoided animals that were killed by strangulation. And then they considered that an animal's life was in the blood. And so they refrained from drinking blood, which was often a main part of pagan worship in their temples. And the fourth category, porneia, sexual morality, I mean, it's talking in a general sense of immorality, sexual morality, fornication. But in this context, it's talking about the specific fornication that was practiced in pagan temples where they, they, they saw the sexual act as part of worship to their pagan deities. And they openly engaged in orgies as part of their worship in their temples. This is what... Uh, the council of Jerusalem was addressing why it was for the sake of Christian fellowship and for the sake of evangelizing Jewish people. It was for the sake of fellowship and also for evangelizing the Jewish people. Uh, J. Paul Hill in his uh, commentary, the New American Commentary, summarizes the four prohibitions in this way. The decrees were a sort of minimal requirements placed on Gentile Christians in deference to the consciences of their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. James's remark would fit here that there are Jews in every city who cherish the Torah. Gentile Christians should be sensitive to their consciences. These Jewish believers, their consciences and should not offend them in ritual matters out of love for them. The law of love. This was the accommodation principle that Paul practiced himself. Described in 1 Corinthians 9.20, that when I was with the Jews, I became like them. I didn't do anything to stumble them hinder them, offend them in any way. When I was the Gentiles, I became the Gentiles so as not to stumble them and hinder them and offend them. But when I was the Jews, same thing. And here is a Christian church with Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And they were saying, Jewish believers, don't bother the Gentile Christians. Don't burden them with your culture with your conviction, with your preferences. Don't trouble them by asking them to observe the Sabbath and observe all these circumcision. At the same time, Gentiles, don't provoke the Jewish Christians. You have the freedom, remember 1 Corinthians 10, to eat food that was sacrificed to idols because we all know idols are nothing. They don't exist. It's not true. So food sold to idols is at a discount, 50% off, and you want to save money, and you are presented to this. But a Jewish believer, all his life was reared in the Torah. Their consciences are sensitive to idolatry. Therefore, he cannot eat, and anything done apart from faith is sin. And so he refuses to eat. So what are you going to do with a Gentile Christian? Because you love your Jewish brother in Christ. Even if a non-believer invites you to eat this food sacrifice to idols because you love your Jewish brother, don't eat. And Paul said, if, my, if by me eating meat offends a brother in Christ, I will never eat meat again because Christian love is more important than eating and drinking. Right? I mean, that's um, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. People misquote that a little, you know, a lot. First Corinthians 10, whether you eat and drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. But the next verse is, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Right? Give no offense. Gentiles, Jewish people, or even Christians, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, I do not seek my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So for Paul, uh, you know, for the apostles here, these additional requirements were not 
requirements in a person's relationship with God, vertical. Right? Ten commandments, first four are vertical requirements, vertical commands. No, vertically before God, it is all by grace. You're saved through faith. But horizontally, we're under the law of love. What guides us, what compels us, what prompts us in our decision-making is our love for one another. And so the Jerusalem apostles are saying, for the sake of Jewish Christians, these things are hypersensitive. They're very difficult things for them. So you should. It's not a command. You should. We, and even the poor, we, we ask you to abstain from these things. And so let me illustrate it. I, maybe, I think some people are nodding. Some people are like puzzled looks. Let me, two illustrations. And if that doesn't help, I can't help you anymore, right? <laughs> You're on your own. You got you to gotta Google this, right? Um, so first illustration is I try to think of some kind of parallel in my own life where I co- encountered this. And, you know, I've been to a lot of places with the grace of God in this world. I have been to Kazakhstan, you know, Russia, China, Japan, Korea, right, you know, East L.A. I've been to a lot of places that are very different from, from here. And, uh, you know, when I went to um, Penza, Russia, some of you guys know what I'm talking about, right, what I'm going to go to. Penza, Russia, 2001, I knew that Russian believers had a unique way of greeting one another, greeting fellow men. And it was, they greeted one another and they showed brotherly love, literally, according to First Corinthians, Romans 16, by kissing one another on the lips. Right, and I don't know about you guys. That is really hard for me. Right, <laughs> I mean, so I, you know, sometimes I share things. And I don't know. Should I share this or not? And afterwards, my wife's like, "Why'd you share that? I don't know why I share that. It's just like you know, just the Holy Spirit, maybe." <laughs> and then I regret for weeks, days, months, or years. But so I might share something right now that I might regret for weeks, months, you know, years and decades. But you know, even my own children, right? I, girls and boys, and I, I, I love my girls. I mean, I, I can kiss them on the lips, you know, and uh, so much so, I enjoy their morning breath, right? When I kiss them on the lips, man, like, they're so sweet. But my boys, I just can't for the life of me kiss them on the lips, right? My wife does all the time, Elias, four months old, I, I just can't, right? I, I hug him, forehead, right? He's a boy, I'm a guy, right? So, guys, amen, right? You understand what I'm talking about? So, even a baby have a hard time kissing on the lips, but I got to kiss like an older gentleman on the lips. But hey, this is like Christian love, right? So I go there two weeks. They don't want to kiss me. <laughs> I don't know why. Morning brother. They don't want to kiss me. Last day, last meeting, you know, class party at the institute. This guy brings a pastor, you know, his pastor from his church. And I was like, last round of shaking hands, goodbye. I'm like, I'm going home without, you know, kissing a guy. And this guy, hey, brother. And he just, and I wasn't expecting it. He plastered right on my lips. I'm like, so the whole week, I was ready for it. I was ready. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in, right? I'm going to, like, commit. I wasn't ready for this. And he plastered on my lips. I started blushing. <laughs> I started like tearing up because, hey, you didn't prepare me, brother. I feel a little bit like, right? So that's so we respect their way. So if we were sending a mission to Tintin Penza, Russia, right? Bob, Jason, and Gary, you guys, Bob, Jason, and Dan, right? Like, well, I tell them, share, preach the gospel, right? Preach the gospel. No, don't add anything. But the brothers there, they show their love by kissing one another on the lips, right? So you should. Do that as well, right? You should practice now. <laughs> I wrote that down. I was like waiting for that, right? <laughs> practice now because you guys don't want to choke at that moment, right? But by doing that, we're not adding to the gospel, right? We're saying you're saved vertically, horizontally. You love fellow brothers, right? So you don't want to offend them. Right? And if it's not an issue of sin, issue of the gospel, you want to accommodate. Right? And you want to be a bridge for the gospel. My second illustration is my mom. And my mom moved in with us a few weeks ago. Things are going well. My mom grew up in, the, in Korea. A lot of superstitions. A lot of them. Like whistling at night is wrong. It's like you know, inviting like bad luck. Uh, you know, stabbing your rice bowl with chopsticks. That's sin. That's illegal. Right? <laughs> having a pillow vertically in your bed or having your uh, blanket upside down. Or, man, the big, one of the biggest things you could do is like buy her shoes, 
right? The superstition is by somebody, you're asking them to leave. So my, 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 my mom, my, my wife gave my mom a pair of shoes. My mom gave her a dime. Why? So you, I can't receive a gift because then luck will make me go away. Right? So I have to pay for him. And I said, just a dime, right? <laughs> if you're going to buy, give us full retail price. What is this? Right? So all these things. So when I was a younger Christian, I'd be like whistling at night. Mom, that's superstition. Here's a pillow. Whoa, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to break this mirror. And my dad was at that time an unbeliever. said, James, right? if it's important to your mom, out of consideration for her, right, you should accommodate her. You should be kind to her. And he was, my dad was an unbeliever, had more wisdom than me, right? Was in the ministry because I was right about their superstitions are wrong, but I was wrong in the way I was using my freedom, right? Freedom is not meant to be right. Freedom is to be used to love one another, right? So if it's full of Christians, that you want to limit your freedom. I'll never eat meat again if eating meat sacrificed to idols stumbles you. It's a conscience issue for you. And for unbelievers, if this is an issue for unbelievers, even them, I don't want to stumble them because I want to be an avenue for the gospel. And that's what, was hap- that's what happened in Acts 15. It was not an addition to the gospel whatsoever. It was the law of love. All right? Um. Back to Galatians 2. Galatians 2, verse 10. They, add, they added nothing except remember the poor and what is happening here. Um, the request here, again, was not doctrinal, but it was practical. It was a practical request to remember the special needs of believers in Judea, especially in Jerusalem. From the earliest days, Christians at Jerusalem suffered Poverty, grinding poverty, so much so that widows were going without food. In Acts chapter uh, 6, there was a big debate about all these widows who were going without food. And the church stepped in to meet their need. There was a great um, uh, famine in the land. At the same time, uh, Christians were persecuted. So they were cast out from their community, from their family and their friends. So it was that much more difficult for Jewish Christians. So Paul made this journey in Acts 11, Galatians 2, to bring money that he collected from Gentile churches in Macedonia. And so they were saying, Paul, thank you. Right? You're ministering to Gentiles, we're ministering to Jews. But remember, continue to remember the poor. And it was a way of saying, continue to remember us. Remember our need, our fellow believers, our need in Christ. And this is exactly what Paul did. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 3, he says, Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed you, the churches of Galatia, on the first day of every week, put something aside and, and collect when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 8, Acts 24, all speak about uh, the collection that was made among Gentile churches, specifically to remember Jews, Jewish Christians in Judea and Jerusalem, and to send these uh, monies to them so that they might have their needs met. So it was a practical request, not a subversive addition to the gospel by adding the law to the gospel of Christ. So Paul is right. He wasn't bamboozled. He wasn't tricked here in any way. They added nothing to his gospel. Gospel stood pure. At the same time, upheld the law of love, the responsibility that Christians have towards one another, to love one another as Christ has loved us. That's the first result. And second result is very short, very simple, very straightforward. When Verse uh, 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, the Gentiles and Peter, the the Jewish people, uh, the pillars, verse 9, the pillars perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. So they accepted me and Barnabas. They welcomed us and and we united together for the gospel work. 
And that's the right hand of fellowship. That's what we do as a church. I think we're adding 20 plus members in a few weeks to our membership. And, and publicly, during our service, we're going to give them the right hand of fellowship. And by doing that, we're continuing on this, this example, modeling the scriptures, where we're saying we acknowledge you as fellow believers, we're united in the gospel, and we're going to contend together for the gospel as one man. Now your ministry is going to be different than my ministry and her ministry. We're going to all run in a different way for the gospel, but we are agreed, we're agreed united on the essence of the gospel and the goal of the gospel. How it works out is, is, is various. So for, for Peter, it was to Jews. For Paul, it was a circ- for the Gentiles. But we are united in this, and that's what they gave to us, the right hand of fellowship. He, he was recognized. He was affirmed, his gospel and his ministry, and they agreed to go forward together. Right. So what, what a great way to end this first meeting. All in unity. Now, this is the first meeting. Next week, starting verse 11, is meeting number two. Meeting one was in Jerusalem. Meeting two is in Antioch. And meeting one was cordial, you know, ended well. Meeting two was like, like it was like, uh, you know, a firefight. You know, it was like an octagon. It was intense. Uh, meeting, what happened in meeting two between Paul and Peter, that's for next week. Three closing thoughts um, to close our study this morning. Um, again, those four requests made by the Jerusalem Council and the request made here in Galatians 2.10, right, um, avoiding idolatry, strangled animals, blood, immorality, and the remembering the poor, tells us the full perspective of Christian liberty. Right? That we are, the direct implications of the gospel is that we are free. Our consciences are binding to no man. We don't, answer, we don't have to answer anyone. We are justified. We are approved. We're accepted by our holy God, by faith alone, by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't answer to anyone. So we are free lords of all, slaves to none. At the same time as Christians, we are slaves to everyone because of the gospel, because of Christ. So you know how legalists, they have the the side agenda we talked about last week, apart from the gospel? Legalists have an agenda that they're always trying to burden people with, whether it's um, clothing, whether it's how how much you spend money, or how your marriage should be, or how you, you should date or how you should you know raise your kids or how you should you know do your quiet time or study the bible they have this other agenda and they want to burden people their agenda is law but the other side the freedom people is their agenda is freedom right their agenda is freedom rather than the gospel dan and i was at we're at a um a conference like two years ago it was in Dallas, Texas, a very conservative, Bible-belt, conservative pastoral meeting. And then a group got up, and they were saying, well, we want to have a meeting for missional pastors, like cutting-edge pastors, younger pastors, and we're going to have a meeting after, after uh, this session. And they made it a point several times, we're going to meet at a pub. We're going to meet at a bar, right? right? Come on. So this pub, we're going to meet there. And they made a point about yeah, we heard you. You're going to meet at a pub, right? And so some of the older pastors were squirming in their seats. Right? So I understand what's happening. It's a Baptistic, Texas, you know, conservative. And these are young missional guys. We have freedom to drink. And uh, you know, I, I thought that wasn't necessary, right? We had the freedom that we talked about last week. But the agenda shouldn't be freedom. Agenda shouldn't be legalism. As Christians, our agenda is the gospel. Our agenda is the gospel. So because of the gospel, we don't burden each other with our own convictions, with our own cultural baggage, with our own preferences. Right? We don't burden one another. At the same time, we don't provoke each other with freedom. If I know, if I know that doing this will stumble you, offend you, discourage you, then I, 
limit my freedom, not because I'm afraid of you, not because I'm a people pleaser, not because I'm a legalist, but because of the gospel, because of Jesus. Because as he loved me, I want to love you so that you might go in the gospel. And so here in Acts 15 and Galatians 2, we see this perfect full orb perspective of the gospel and our responsibility to one another. Right? I mean, Galatians 5.13, you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only this counts. Only this matters. Faith working through love. Is your faith in Christ working out, causing you to love one another? Because that's the only thing that matters. Right? So if you say you have faith to move mountains, but you have no love for one another, you are nothing. You are nothing. You're not doing the work of God. That is not a faith that God is pleased with. Because the only thing that counts is faith working through itself in love. Second closing thought is remembering the poor. Remembering the poor, first of all, poor fellow Christians who are in need, and then the world. That is the heart of God. Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. James 2, 15 through 17, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go, I wish you well, be warm and satisfied, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 1 John 3, 17 and 18, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother, fellow Christian in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and in speech, but in deed and in truth. Let's be in the practice of liquidating our assets, right? selling things on eBay and Craigslist, right? and giving out of our plenty to meet fellow believers in their need. For this is the heart of God. And then third and finally, um, these ritual laws. I mean, you read the Old Testament, laws against idolatry and, and diet. I mean, it's just intense. Things you cannot eat. The kind of cl- fabrics you cannot wear. Right? Things you cannot do. People, we can't involve ourselves in so many things. These laws are so restrictive. So we must not lose sight of the law. The purpose of the law is not for us to obey them perfectly. The law is given to us to to break our hearts, to pummel us, to expose our helplessness and hopelessness to obey the law, to tell us that it is impossible to keep the law. That we cannot just go to God and say, hey, hi, God. He will strike us dead because we are unholy and He is holy and there is no way through obedience to the law we can make ourselves pure and righteous to be in His presence. We cannot um, cleanse ourselves enough to present ourselves to God. The only way we can present ourselves to God is by going to Jesus. Going to Christ. Hebrews 10 talks about uh, these animals were not able to, to atone for sin. Only Christ is able to atone for sin once for all. So Christ, Jesus is who washes us. He is the one who makes us clean. And so the idea here, here I guess, is um, you, know, you don't wash your face before you go into a sh- to get a shower. Right? You don't put makeup on and do your hair before you're going to take a shower. That's absurd. Right? No, you're dirty, so you take a shower to, to be cleaned. Same thing. You don't get yourself like ready to meet Jesus. You don't say, man, I haven't read the Bible this week. I haven't prayed. You know, I wasn't really like fellowshipping at church. I, 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 I did some bad things this week. So I need to like, man, do so. I need to like serve. 
I need to do, you know, nursery ministry. You know, I need to like set up some chairs. I got to do some things to get right with God so that I can meet Jesus. That's like getting ready to take a shower. No, you take a shower. You go to Jesus as you are. That's what the law is. You do all these things to meet God. In the new covenant, we go to Jesus with our filth, with our sins, and he makes us clean. He washes us. He forgives us. And through that, we have this intimate, living, vibrant relationship with God through his son. Let us go to him, to the wide and open way of prepared for us the cross and with unashamedness, with boldness and confidence, let us continue to pursue Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we... Uh, Father who inspired the scriptures. God who knew our name before we were even born. The heart searcher who knows the thoughts, the intentions, the motivations of our, of our hearts. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the scriptures and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for liberating us, freeing us from the burden of the law, where we are righteous not by works but through faith in Christ alone. But we thank you also for guiding us and teaching us that this freedom is not to be used to indulge our flesh, but you've given us this freedom. The purpose of this freedom is to show your love for us, to demonstrate it. Not, it would not just be an emotion, it would not just be an experience, but it would be seen and lived out within the church, by how Christians love one another, by not burdening each other with our own culture, our own preferences, our own convictions, and by limiting our freedoms and not offending one another out of love. Lord, we thank you for this precious truth that is uh, lived out by Jesus Christ, where Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is exactly what Jesus did while he was on the earth. He, he drank and ate and spent time with sinners, with tax collectors and prostitutes. For we are justified by grace and not through works. At the same time, Lord, he loved them for the gospel. Lord, he reached out to them with the message of salvation through faith alone. Lord, we pray that you would grant us uh, Gospel renew in our hearts where we can live in this paradoxical world. And because we know your love, we would so love one another. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.